today we begin a brand new series uh, based on the Sermon on the Mount and Gut Check Mountain. You will hear things that along this series that you'll ask this question, did Jesus really just say that? In fact, along the way, you'll see him raising the standard. He was sitting with a bunch of disciples and a bunch of followers. And scripture even says in Matthew chapter 7 and verse 28, when he got finished preaching these messages, they stood back and they were amazed at what he said. And there were thousands of people there. So there was this hillside that he was preaching from that before he preached there, scholars said there wasn't even a name for this mountain, this hillside. hillside. But after he went there, they, they named it. That's the place where the Sermon on the Mount took place. He re- renamed it because he was there. So he lays out these standards and he's saying, okay, if you want to follow me, this is what it looks like to be a Christ follower. And be quite frank, You and I both on this journey over the next weeks, walking through Matthew 5, 6, and 7, will be asking ourselves this question, is that even possible? I mean, along the way, Jesus will ask you to get rid of an eye, cut off an arm, get rid of a leg. He'll tell you to sign an oath, and you'll be saying, man, God, I'm not certain I can even be a Christian, for crying out loud. If I got to pluck out an eye and cut off a limb, I'm not certain I want to walk on this journey. So even when these early disciples heard this for the first time, They were perplexed and they were challenged. Even the religious people, there was a religious group that followed him. Jesus really set them back a step or two because they were used to just checking off a list and saying, this is what it means to be a Christ follower. Jesus raises the standard. He takes the standard that was there and he raises it. And so we're going to see, and we're going to ask this question, have we really, as Christ followers, lived out the Sermon on the Mount? Have we really? Now think about this for a second. From a personal standpoint, for me, it was interesting as I began to study for this series was these are the messages that Jesus preached. Talk about pressure for me. It's like, holy cow. I mean, if Jesus spoke this, I don't want to mess this up. These are the messages that he thought were important enough for the followers of his day and not only of his day, but for the followers today. So it's an interesting perspective, and we're trying to think through that as we preach through the Sermon on the Mount. By the way, it's an interesting perspective from my side of the mountain, too. There are snakes, guys that put all kinds of animals. You should see some of the stuff that's up here um, on the other side of the mounts here. Thanks, guys. I appreciate that. But we're going to walk through and watch. (laughs) You should see some of this. We're going to walk through the standards that Jesus set for us. Have you ever walked into a setting where you thought this is how you're supposed to do it and this is the way you've always done it. Maybe you you went from one job to another and you walk into this new environment and it's like, no, we don't do it that way here. This is how we do it here. It's like, whoa, they've raised the bar. I can remember as a high school freshman going out, trying out for basketball at my North Hagerstown High School. And and that, that was a long time ago. And I remember during the summer in seventh, eighth grade, you know, I played in some leagues and was pretty good. And, and, and so when we go to the high school, I, I thought I was ready. I remember walking into first practice, realizing they have to cut 75 players to make the team. I realized this is pretty serious. And so I remember they were keeping 15 or roughly 90 uh, players there and they cut, they were cutting 75. So you knew in order to make this team, you had to go all in. The standard was high. And I remember reminding myself of that the first two nights of practice, I was outside puking my guts out thinking, wow, this is a new standard. But Jesus raises the bar and he sets a new standard. I was fortunate enough when I graduated from college uh, to work construction with a really good group of professional carpenters. And I was an apprentice and was learning the trade and, and, and received a job 
with a really, really good reputable builder in Hagerstown, Maryland called Quality Homes. At that time, they built nothing less than $500,000 homes. So 20 years ago, that was a pretty expensive home. But these builders were young professionals, and, and so I w- would work alongside of them, and eventually became a trim carpenter with them. But I remember even some of the things that they did was so much different than what other builders did. And so when we would bring in other carpenters that had worked with other builders, they would walk in and start doing it a different way. And they would say, no, we don't do it that way here. This is why we do it. It's a step above. And so he charged a step above. I remember one way, even uh, for instance, before we set drywall, before we placed drywall on the walls, I remember the first time one of the guys came in, had never done this from another builder. We would go into rooms and literally would take the studs, the outside studs and the inside stud walls, and we would straighten them. We would take a six-foot level and an eight-foot level, and we would run it down the walls. And if there was a, a stud that was bowed in or bowed out, we would take a planer and shave it off. And then if it needed added to, we would cut strips of inch and a half shingles and add to it. And so that it was a straight wall. We would even do the same for the ceiling joists above so there weren't sags or dips in the drywall. And I can remember a guy coming in and saying, why in the world do you do that? It gets covered up with drywall. And I remember us looking at this, these guys who often ask that question, but then what follows drywall? Crown mold, chair rail. And so when you look down the wall, it's not dipped, it's straight. It was a new standard. And so for me, that's how I learned how to build. And so if you come from another, another builder walking in and you're just used to just putting up studs, sighting them, make sure the bows are out, and then putting drywall on it, you don't get that same straight look. Jesus is raising the bar. Jesus is setting a new standard. You and I are going to be challenged over these next chapters as we flush through them and flush them out. Grab your Bibles and let's go on a journey together. Let's look at this new set of standards and turn to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. Do you need a Bible? Hold your hand up. Our ushers will be glad to put one in your hand. Matthew chapter 5, and let's look at verses 1 through 12. Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 12. Turn there, and we'll read it together. Matthew 5, verses 1 to 12. Stand with me. Let's read it together. Matthew 5, verses 1 through 12. Read it out loud with me. Ready? Read. Now, when he saw the crowds, he went up on the mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You may have a seat. We see right away as we look at this these beatitudes, we're going to see that the term bless appears often. And we're going to see this, that we need to meet the standard and be blessed. So Jesus is seated there on this mountainside, and he's talking to his disciples, and he says, you'll be blessed if you do. You'll be blessed if this is you. And so there's this condition that comes 
as a result of wanting or receiving this blessing. The word blessed is a word that we often use in our world today to attempt to describe what we see as someone receiving favor. We'll say something like, wow, that family's just blessed, or that business seems to be blessed, or that person has a blessing on their life. Everything they touch just seems to to turn into gold. Boy, they're blessed. And so Jesus is saying this, blessed are you if you do. Part one is blessed. Part two is if you respond or act this way. There seems to be a blessing that comes. As you will see, the word blessed will follow when we live the way Jesus intends us to live. You get your blessed when you live to the standard that Jesus has set. Blessed is more than happy. Some translations have happier those. Happier those if you do this. But this blessed is more than happy because that is often based on outward circumstances. It is, can be better defined as an ultimate and spiritual joy that we receive as we share in the joy of our salvation. It's this inward contentment, this contentedness that's not affected by our outward circumstances. It's singularly blessed by God. Therefore, in some sense, it makes us happy. We become happy if we do these things. It's happy that's not like, I'm happy today is Friday at four o'clock. No, I'm happy because I have this relationship with Jesus and this inward contentment that even Monday morning at a.m., I'm happy. That's the difference in the contentment that comes. It's not a superficial experience of well-being, but it's based on the fact that one's life is right with God, blessed because of a deep satisfaction. It's, it's like a baseball player that's in, he's batting and the pitcher's on the mound. When there's a 3-0 count, the, the pitcher doesn't have much of a, a contentment, but the batter is like, yeah, 3-0, baby. It's a difference in the inward contentment of having a 3-0 count as a batter. It's this inward contentment. Like, it's like walking out to your yard. You're with your wife, you're the husband, and you see some dandelions. So you both reach down to grab a dandelion. She reaches and turns and breaks off the root. You go down and get the dandelion and the whole root comes out. That's contentment. That's great contentment because you know it's not coming back. While she has the broken off, it looks good for a while, but doggone it, in a few weeks, it's coming back out. It's an inward contentment based upon this way of living with God, knowing that this will benefit those around me and me personally and will point others to Jesus. You see, here's the thing that I I know. The blessing is a result of living out God's new sets of standards. So we're going to look at these, and you have to ask the question, and I have to ask the question, not just today, but every day of our lives. Is this the pattern and standards by which I live? Are these the ways that I'm living? And quite frank, none of us are at all, the t- at all, at all times. But the goal is to become more like these and work towards these. The opening to the Sermon on the Mount also reminds me and us that God is not just this cosmic killjoy. You can't laugh, you can't smile, you just have to be serious the rest of your life. Like I've said before, praise God, hallelujah, I'm a Christian, will you want to be one too? It's not that picture there. 
It's that God isn't a cosmic killjoy. It's this inward joy that comes in this relationship with Jesus. And when people bump into you, come around you and say, there's something different about you. And the difference is it's this inward inner joy, no matter what you're doing, no matter if you're playing basketball, playing soccer, if you're working on the assembly line, if you're jogging or running, if you're painting, if you're, if you're scraping paint, there's this inward joy of the Lord in you. Blessed are those who live to these standards. Happy are those. God is not a cosmic killjoy. He wants us to be blessed. Our lives should be so attractive, by the way, to others that we have the aroma of God on us. That's why these are written. Ultimately, they're so that we have this, this, this deep relationship with Jesus. But even more than that, we are placed here to point others to Jesus. So someone looks at your life and says, Wow, look at their life. There's something different about them. They must be a Christ follower. Your life has the aroma of Jesus and they say, I want that. Wow, look how they responded to grace and love. Look how they give that. I need that. Not I need them, but I need the God that helps them be that them. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 2, and I'll show you what I mean. Our goal is to point other people to Jesus Christ through the way we live. Turn to 2 Corinthians and keep your finger in Matthew, but turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 15. Paul describes this, I think, in a, just a great way. 2 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 15. He says this. 2 Corinthians 2 and verse 15. For we are to whom, who's it to whom? God, the what? The aroma of whom? Christ among those who are being what? And those who are what? Look again, it says, for we are to God, the aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and those who are perishing. In other words, our lives should radiate and permeate with the smell of Jesus so that when others get around us, they don't want us, they want the Jesus in us. Best way to describe it is like, I am gonna smell good after three services today, but it's, it's like putting on cologne. It's like, it's putting on the ax, the commercials that this attracts women. That's so stupid, by the way. Anyhow, only woman I wanna attract is Ann, baby. Ann, where are you at? Here, here, you know, just... But acts, this smell, this aroma, we should be so much around Jesus that we smell like Jesus. Let me ask you a question. Is that what you smell like? That's getting strong. But is that what you smell like? Paul is saying that you should have the aroma of Christ. Now, listen, I want to drive this home. It's not so that you get the attention. It's so that you point people to Jesus. We're here as signposts and sign markers to point people to Jesus. And so when we live out as standards, point people to Jesus. When we determine to live in such a way to please God, he sees it and we're gonna see he rewards our behavior and says, you're blessed, happy are those. This happiness comes from deep within. And here's what happens. It allows us to stand confidently in any situation with an inner peace, a joy like never before. Even if we're knocked down, we get back up because the joy of the Lord is in us. There's this inward contentment. We got the whole root, baby. We're content. 
in Christ, no matter what is happening around, has nothing to do with outward circumstances. It's having peace and contentment and joy in the midst of any circumstance. So let's move on to the new set of standards that Jesus lays out. Here's what I know to be true about the B attitudes. This is what your life would look like if you had perfect faith in Jesus Christ. This is what my life would look like if I had perfect faith in Jesus Christ. So Jesus is sitting there, his disciples are listening, and then he says, hey, this is what your life would look like, by the way, if you had perfect faith. Now, the followers early in the day, they were longing to be like Christ too. So there's probably, the they're taking notes like, okay, if I do this, ooh, I got some work. Ooh, if I do that, um, got that one. Can we move on, Jesus? Uh, next one. Oh, I got some work to do. That's what we'll find too. But this is what it would look like if we woke up every day and we walked perfect in the will of God. The Sermon on the Mount is going to be a collection of perfect living for Christ. It's our goal. So look at the first beatitude. Look at verse three. Chapter five and verse three. Blessed are the what in spirit, poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. By the way, I find it very interesting. Maybe you're not like me, but I find it very interesting when I read through these beatitudes, when left to my own thinking, I want to do just the opposite of all these. It's like, I don't want to be poor in spirit. I want to be rich in spirit. I don't want to mourn. I want to be joyful. I, 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 I don't want to be a peacemaker. I want to get justice. And so I find myself, if left to my own thinking, the flesh part of me says, I want just the opposite of these. I suspect that the early disciples were thinking the same thing. Maybe you're not as unreligious as I am. And maybe you're saying, well, Pastor Jim, I live that way every day. I mean, what are you talking about? Well, let's work through chapter six and seven and we start cutting off some arms and plucking out some eyes. Then I'll ask you. To be poor in spirit is not to lack courage, but to acknowledge one's spiritual bankruptcy. Now, just hang on to that statement. What's it mean to be poor in spirit? It's not to lack courage, but to acknowledge one's spiritual bankruptcy and our need to depend on Jesus. That's a good thing, by the way. You can see how this would rub against the philosophy of many of Jesus' day and our world today. Climb the ladder on your own strength. Go up, go up, go up. Do, 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 do so that you can have this. It's all about me. Why don't I get what he has? And he's been doing it for 30 years. I have this. I should have that. These expectations and entitlement of our world today would be dismantled with this being poor in spirit. It's the sense of that we are bankrupt. We're nothing without Jesus spiritually. It's a sense of, I need him. Poor in spirit says, I need God to fill me up. I need to empty myself of me and let him fill me up. Otherwise, why live? In other words, when you're at the end of your rope, Jesus says, there's more of God in his rule. You stand in the strength of the Lord and more of him and less of us is always a good thing. Jesus says, we need a recognition of how weak we really are, and not only how weak we really are, but how weak we are without him. It's this picture that we need to be at the end of our rope. You know, I don't like this any more than you do. It's this picture of this is our lives and our own strength. We like 
the fact that we're in charge. We like that we don't need to ask for help. It's the picture of that I have all this ability, all this talent, all these resources, all this help. I have this IRA and this investment. I'm set to I'm 93. And it doesn't matter if Medicaid's not around. It's a sense where we can feel strong with what we possess and what we can do. But Jesus is saying, you need to be spiritually bankrupt and not rely on your own. You need to take all this resource, this rope resource that you have, you need to let go of all that. Get to the end of the rope. He said, literally, when you get to the end of the rope, that's when you're strong. I don't feel very strong here. Jesus says, it's when you're there, you empty yourself of you and you cling to me. Listen, we are way stronger when we strip ourselves of us and we cling to him and his power. Do you agree with that, by the way? We are much stronger that way. But listen, the flesh is, oh no. Oh, I got this much saved up and look at my house and I got my kids' education and, and I'm, I'm leaning on that. I am happy. Listen, these are outward circumstances. When this is stripped away, Jesus says, you need to be spiritually bankrupt of yourself and completely filled with me so that you're not rattled. And someone looks at your life and say, how'd they do that? It's because you're empowered by Jesus. It's, it's sending us down so that he can lift us up and he gets the glory. Look at the next beatitude, verse four. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. You know, I love this picture here of Jesus sitting with his disciples. And it's, it's this picture that, that he's looking at them and he's saying, it's a good thing to mourn. And here's why. When you mourn, he said, you'll be comforted. What's he talking about mourning? He's talking about mourning over the sins of the world. He's talking about mourning over your own sin and saying, man, had it not been for the of Jesus Christ, I would be lost. It's looking at the sins of your community and your workplace and your schools. It's looking at the sins that you personally have, your depraved mind and saying, God, please, God, do something about this. It's the picture of Jesus looking over Jerusalem and scripture says he wept over Jerusalem. When's the last time you've mourned and wailed over the sins of our world in your own life? And Jesus says, when you mourn, it said, look what it said, when you mourn, you will be comforted because I come into that situation. It's a beautiful picture of weeping over the sins of others. Plus the mere fact that people are hurting in this beautiful picture that God gives us comfort. In fact, it's a picture of a parent mourning over the poor choices of their child and just saying, God, I'm at the end of myself. God, please, God, you do something. And he walks in and he resurrects the situation and we lean on him and we say, God, I don't no longer carry this problem, this sin choice that they've made. You have the big problem. I love what Eugene Peterson says. He says, you are blessed when you have lost what is most dear to you. Only then can you be embraced by the one most dear to you. When you've lost what is most dear to you, only then can you be embraced by the one who's most dear to you. And you're looking at the effects of sin, maybe in a marriage, and you're saying, God, this is horrible. 
she's this way and he's that way. Look at these poor choices and they want nothing to do with me. He says, you are blessed and mourning over that because at that point, you're at the end of yourself and I am comforting you and that's a good place to be. That's when I hold you the closest. And Jesus said, blessed are those who mourn over those kind of things. It's in those times that you are comforted. When life falls apart because of sin, it's in those times that God holds us close. Look at the next beatitude in verse five. It says, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. You know, when we see the word meek, we don't like to say, boy, I'm meek. (laughs) You want to be meek with me? You know, guys like, no, I'm strong. I'm bold. I'm be strong and courageous. How about be meek and courageous? It's just, it's like they're almost contradictory in our world today. But don't misinterpret the word meek. Meek is not defined as weak here, but strength under control. Now think about that. There's a huge difference there. It's strength under control. It means you're strong, but there's the select times that you use it. You don't have to use it to promote yourself. It's power in God, but a meek person. It says the meek will inherit the earth. Think about that for a second, what that means. The Bible tells us over and over again that if we humble ourselves, he will lift us up. It's us giving up our right to be right in many, many situations, even though we know we could be right. It's, it's, Bible tells us that pride comes before destruction. It's the stripping away of pride. Meek inherit the earth because they know who they are in Jesus. It's a sense of, I know who I am. I don't have to show you who I am. I know who I am in Christ. It's a subtle confidence that doesn't need to be demonstrated outwardly all the time. It's a sense where a person could care less what others choose to say about them, even if they're misrepresented it. And and it's a person who's not reactionary, but leads the way because of confidence and courage that comes from deep within. The Old Testament uses the word spleen in the original. It's the idea of having this confidence from our spleen. We don't need to show it on the outside, but it comes from within. It's strength under control. Now, let me explain maybe visually for you. It's not the picture of the, 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 the weightlifter who takes his shirt off and has to wear the tank top, you know, the kind of go way over here so he can show his pecs. It's like, dude, come on. If you have to show your strength that way, that's not strong. It's the picture of a person who's just as strong, who dresses modestly, and in a time of trouble, they walk into a situation and they have this unusual mental, physical, and spiritual strength. And you walk away and they handle the situation and they don't bring attention to themselves. And you walk away and say, wow, I didn't know they were that strong. I didn't know they had strength like that. It's not the guy that wants to posterize himself on the front of a magazine showing all his ribs and his abs and his arm muscles and his biceps and triceps and gliceps and iceps and all those. It isn't. It's, it's the person that's just as strong, works out just as much, but listen, you don't mess with them. It's strength under control. That's the difference in a meek person. And Jesus is saying, blessed are the meek because they will inherit the earth. I love this paraphrase. It says this, you are blessed when you are content with just 
who you are, no more, no less. That's the moment you find yourself proud owners of everything that can't be bought. Think about that again. You are blessed when you're content with just who you are, no more, no less. That's the moment you find yourselves proud owners of everything that can't be bought. It's not the cosmetic strength that guys like the show. It's the inward strength that says, don't mess with him. The power of God is on his life. And when need be, he comes through or she comes through. That's a meek person. Look at verse six. Verse six says this, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be what? Filled. This verse really calls us to ask the question, what are the things we're hungry for? What are you thirsty for right now? What are the things that drive your appetite? And Jesus is saying, righteousness should drive our appetite. Now, that doesn't sound very appealing, man. Like, you know, like a, 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 a steak, a filet mignon sounds better than hey, uh, thriving for righteousness. It's because our minds and our tastes and our taste buds have been so accustomed to possessions, to things, to things that make us feel good and things that smell good. And Jesus is saying, sometimes righteousness is a tough path, but you should hunger and thirst after that. It's the sense of a person who is on this journey, filling their mind and their hearts with things that are noble and good and trustworthy. By the way, what does consume your mind? What what are your thoughts? What are you hungering and thirsting after? Your appetite is the catalyst for the food that feeds the direction of your life. Your appetite is the catalyst that feeds the direction of your life. Is it boys? I'm hungry for him. (laughs) Or just to have her on my shoulder. I'm hungry to drive one of those. I, if I only could be there, if I could achieve that, if I could be promoted like her, if I could have just another weekend, it's like my appetite is for the weekends. I'm so glad it's the weekend. My appetite for vacation or titles or notoriety or grades or trophies. What drives you? What is your schedule filled with? There is your appetite. That's what you hunger and thirst after. What are the things that fills up your daily life? That's what you're hungry for. That's what drives you. Nutritionists say it this way. They'll say this, your appetite determines your diet. Let's just pause and think about that. Your appetite and my appetite determines our diet. Diet determines your intake, and your intake determines your health. Basically, what you eat is who you are. And so Jesus is saying the same thing. What you eat and what you take in is who you are, and you can't be anybody different than what you take in. So we need to hunger and thirst after righteousness. Seriously, have any of you ever really had real hunger pains? Not like two hours before supper and your teenage boy comes and says, I'm starving. How often do we say that most don't have a clue what it means to be starving? But we should starve after righteousness. Our appetite should be after God and following hard after him. Most people are not receiving this blessing and true happiness because we are feeding our spiritual appetites with junk. Now think about it as a parent. How many times have you told your children this? 
right before supper. You know supper's at five or six or whenever it is at your house. And they come to you 15 minutes before supper and they say, can I have like 24 Oreo cookies? And you look at them and the response of most parents is this. Don't, listen, you look at them. Don't eat that because it'll ruin your appetite. Don't eat that because it'll ruin your appetite. But it's only 24 Oreo cookies, but it'll ruin your appetite. And Jesus is saying, there are some things that you're eating that's ruining your appetite. We need to get rid of those and only eat what's right and good and trustworthy. God's word, God's plan, God's time together. So the question is, what are you filling yourself up with? He says, if in fact we, are, we hunger and thirst for righteousness, we will be filled, we will be satisfied. And you can see it. Show me a person who spends time with God, who, who's, who's soaked into reading his word, who's praying, who's, who's sharing his faith. You will see a person who is deeply content in who they are. And you will see a blessing on their life because God rewards that behavior. Eugene Peterson says it this way in the paraphrase. He says, you are blessed when you work up a good appetite for God. He's food and drink and the best meal you'll ever eat. But here's the problem. We also have an evil, small G God that wants to fill you up with an imitation. He wants to to fill you up with something that you think will satisfy you. And so he has devised a plan to try to keep you running after imitations. Think about the ways he does that. I mean, there's a variety of ways. Boy, if you look at this girl on the internet, guys, you'll be satisfied. If you go to this website, ladies, you'll be satisfied. And if you wear this, then you'll be satisfied. And if you, and if you hang out with these people who are the in crowd, you'll be satisfied. But the end result isn't complete satisfaction. It's only temporary. But Jesus says, if you hunger and thirst after me, you will be completely satisfied in any circumstance. And you can have the guts to say, no, I'm not drinking the junk. I'm not eating the crap. I'm not doing it because I know that I want a healthy body spiritually. There's just some things that taste really, really good. And there's nothing like the original. For me, I drink very, very few coffee, but I'll drink sometimes a half a cup a day. And when I drink it, I like it. But there's some coffee that's really, really good. It's, 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 it's found in Cambodia. So every time I go to Cambodia, I love getting their iced coffee. There's nothing like it. I haven't found it. I've tried to create it here. It's not good for you, but it's my 80, 20 time to just do something that tastes good and just not good for you. And, and so there's nothing like the taste of it. And I've tried to recreate it with confectionery milk here and I'll drink iced coffee. And so I, I, I try to bring it back to America and I, I just can't do it. There's nothing like it. Like there's nothing like a really good steak. And you know what a really good steak is. I, I, I'll be honest. I have to laugh when I see Walmart commercials and they have those steaks and they're saying like, oh, this is the best steak. And it's like, you've never been to Ruth Chris, have you? It's like, you got to be kidding. Who are you trying to kid? Walmart steaks? It's like, they, they might taste good, but they probably got junk on it. It's going to kill you. But there's nothing like raising one on your own and, and bringing that, that, that has there's nothing but just organic food in front of you, meat in front of you. But Jesus is saying, don't settle for the Walmart. Settle for me. You'll find great fulfillment to that. Look what he says in verse 7. He said, blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown what? Mercy. You know, 
here I go again. The flesh side is me. I don't want mercy. I want justice. They did that, so doggone it. They deserve that. I mean, every part of me, just when I look at these, it's like there are times when I, I, don't, I want just the opposite of all this. God, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. God, just give me like 10 minutes and you can have the rest of their life, okay? Give me some, God. We want justice. No, God says, blessed are the merciful for they would be shown mercy. A lot is said in our circles in our world today, even about grace. Grace is God giving us something that we don't deserve. Praise the Lord for that. Salvation is free. We don't deserve it. Yet mercy is when God holds back what we do deserve. Man, aren't you grateful for mercy too? Think about that. He holds back what we do deserve. We deserve hell, but he holds that back. Mercy is compassion or forgiveness shown towards someone whom it's within one's power to punish or harm them. Well, they deserve to be fired. They deserved to be gone. They deserved this because they did that. And mercy says, I'm gonna show some mercy towards you. I'm gonna withhold what you do deserve. And Jesus said, blessed are the merciful because they will be shown mercy. Jesus says, when we give it, we get it back. But that's not the world we'd like to live in. It's checked and balanced. You did this, here's what you get. I tell you, people don't know what to do with mercy in our world. They're afraid, like, then, 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 then there's gotta be a, a hook to this. No, just, just some mercy. Jesus moves on. Look at verse eight. He says, blessed are the pure in heart for they will see what? Now, this is where it kind of all stops for me. I'm reading through here and I think, wow, wow, that's hard. Wow, I need to work on that one. Wow, got that one down like one out of 10. Wow, 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 wow. And I get to this one. Blessed are the pure in heart for they will see God. This one stops me in my tracks. See, because I, along with most of you in this room, really want to long to hear God's voice. And we want to see God. We... We want to hear the whispers of the Holy Spirit, not some man saying, hey, this is the way you need, you need to do it. You need. No, I want to hear God. And I want to respond to him. You know, Isaiah 30, 21 says, my ears will hear a voice behind me saying, whether I turn to my left or right, my ears will hear a voice behind me saying, this is the way walk in it. I want to live my life as Jesus said, turn right, make that decision, go left, go straight. I want to hear the whispers of the Holy Spirit. I want to see God in work and in action. I want to know that he's there. And Jesus said, the only way that you'll have that, blessed are the pure in what? I love this word pure. I don't often go there, but it's worth because in in, in this context it is. In the Greek, the word pure is the Greek word katharos. It's where we get the word catheter. And you know what a catheter does? A catheter is an instrument used to remove impurities. So Jesus is saying, in order to be pure in heart, a catheter has to come in to remove the impurities. It's the Greek word katharos. It's where we get catheter. It's a sense where there's an instrument used to remove the impurities in our lives. We need to clean through the removal of the contamination in our hearts. It's Pure is unmixed or unadulterated. And so we should drive towards that. It's this sense where we're so pure in heart that we see God. It's like sometimes God's at work and we don't see him because our hearts aren't clean. 
You know, just recently, even, there was an article in uh, this week's paper, Negotiation News, about a Fairfield football player that broke his fibula or dislocated his fibula, and it was just a really freak break, and it was, it was, it was tough. I think it was Jeremy Johnson, I think. Anyhow, the, the paper article said just really freak, weird thing. So I read the article, and because I, I, you know, I pray for the Fairfield football team. And, and, and as I was reading this, I saw it went on down to say that they put this boot on, and he's supposed to go back for an X-ray. And so in the midst of driving his car one day last week, his boot got caught on the foot pedal of the brake. And so he pulled, jerked his foot away, and in doing so, he didn't realize it right away, but it, it, it's, it, 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 it took his dislocation and located it back in the right place. And so he went into the doctors to get an x-ray, and they said, dude, basically said, you know, paraphrase, dude, there's nothing wrong with your leg. You know, when I see that, I don't look at that as like, that's a freak coincidence. My mind says, wow, look what God did. My mind says, I bet there was a mom or a father or a teammate or a coach or someone praying for healing. I bet someone prayed and God says, well, I'm just going to show off here. <laughs> but, you know, some people could miss that because they're not pure in heart. And they're not hungering after righteousness. I want to see those kind of things and say, wow, look what our God just did. Let me, let me demonstrate, if I can, what I mean by being pure in heart. Our hearts are desperately wicked, the Bible tells us. Well, let's put it this way. Jim's heart is desperately wicked. I'll start there. Maybe yours isn't, but mine is. And so the Bible says that here that the pure in heart will see God. We need this, 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 this catharist, this, this purity to take place. We need to have a catheter to come in and take away this contamination. Let's just put some oil in here and just say, this, is, this stands for the contamination in our heart. There's this, this contamination, this oil, this, this, this sin in our lives. But what we try to do, we try to work it out. It's like, let me get rid of that sin. We try to do it on our own. And what happens is we just become a sloppy, sinful mess. We can't do it ourselves. And the word of God says, blessed are the pure in heart for they will see God. The only way that we become pure in heart is by filling ourselves up with God, spending time in his word, confessing our sins. And what happens is when Jesus comes in, he becomes the catheter and he pushes out all the impurities. He pushes them out. More of him, less of us, and all the impurities get pushed out. And the Bible says here, blessed are the pure in heart because they will see God. And the reason we see God is because he's ruling in our lives. Don't you want to see God? And the Bible says, when you are pure in heart, you will see God. Let's move on. Look at the next beatitude. Look what it says in verse 9. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. You know, I pray through the, the spiritual armor of God. I prayed this morning. I go right from the head to the bottoms of my feet. And I pray, God, may my feet be shod with the preparation of peace. Sometimes I pray that and, and I wonder if I really understand what that means. Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers. Have you ever watched a peacemaker at, at, in action? Have you ever watched someone walk into a situation and moderate the two sides and say, you know, you ought to think about this. 
And he has some good points to say. And she has some good points to say. Have you ever watched a peacemaker walk in and just bring peace to a situation? Jesus says, blessed are those that do that. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. I'm not talking about compromise, but I'm talking about still being able to contend for the faith, but being peacemaker. You know, Romans says, also reminds us that, that if it's possible, as far as it depends on you, Romans 12, 18, you are to live at peace with everyone. It says that there are times when you can't, but the ultimate goal is reconciliation. So are you striving towards that peace? There are people right now that just come to mind and think, man, I love watching. In fact, I want them in circles. I hope they're part of this, this gathering that we have because they're so good. And I think, man, God calls them a son of God, a daughter of God. Are you a person that strives towards being a peacemaker? Or are you get your way, I'm right, and this is the way. You see, these things begin to strip me, flay me right open. It's like, man, I got some work to do. And Jesus is looking at disciples and telling them the same thing. Look at verse 10. Verse 10 and 11 and 12 says this, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. In other words, Jesus is looking at his disciples and said, there's going to be, come a time when you're going to be persecuted because you're standing up for what is right. Maybe you're in a dating relationship and you're realizing he's pushing too far and you've compromised. And maybe you settled. Maybe you didn't wait for the best option. You just took the most available that was there because you're lonely and you're like, I'm running out of time. And God is saying, don't compromise. And maybe you'll get some heat for that. And maybe he won't like you anymore. Or she won't like you anymore. And maybe you're standing up in the workplace and you're saying, you know, I'd appreciate if you use, use a, a different way to describe that. Can we just, can we, can we talk about this? Maybe you stand up and, and you walk into situations and you do it differently. And because of that, they make call names or make fun of you. Listen, it's worth it, God said. It says, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Persecution gives us a chance to show how fit we really are for this battle we're in. Seriously, why do all this and just say, well, I'm good at it if we never have a moment where we can utilize the strength of the Lord in us? Because ultimately it points people to God because they'll look at your life and say, how'd they do that? How'd she do that? And you can say nothing because they know it's because of the strength of the Lord that's in you. Not only that, he says, count yourselves blessed because of it. I love the paraphrase here again. Eugene Peterson says this in verse 12. He says, count yourselves blessed every time people put you down or throw you out or speak lies about you to discredit you. What it means is that truth is too close for comfort and they are uncomfortable. You can be glad when that happens. Give a cheer even, he says. For though they don't like it, I do. And all heaven applauds. And know that you are in good company. My prophets and my witnesses have always gotten into this kind of trouble. Let me wrap it up by saying this. Why are we doing these things? We do all these things to give glory to God. But 
we are here as signposts. Think about this for a second. You and I are here to say, hey, I'm a directional marker. I'm a signpost for Jesus. Don't look at me. Don't fall in love with me because I'm a human being, but fall in love with the God who gives me the ability to be me and to respond this way. We are signposts. We are mile markers. We are directional arrows saying, hey, this is the way to Jesus. So when someone looks at our lives, the aroma, the righteousness, our response, the blessing on our lives gives others a chance to find Jesus. Let me explain. When I travel back east and head back to Hagerstown, Maryland, there's a sign on Interstate 70 that says Hagerstown, 28 miles. Now, every time I see that sign, I get warm fuzzies inside of me. I get warm fuzzies too. And I, 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 get, I get warm fuzzies. It's like, it's home. It's like, that's where it all began. That's where my roots started. And so when I see the sign, it's like, yeah, Hagerstown, 28 miles. But, but it's just a sign. It's telling me that, hey, 28 more miles down the road, you're going to get what you came for. I don't stop and pull off the road and have our kids run up and say, let's hug this sign. 28 miles. It's not like I'm in love with the sign. It's not like, you know, I'm looking at the signs that are something special. No, it's just green. It's white. It's got letters. It's a directional and a signpost to say, hey, the best is yet to come. Listen to me, Christ followers. We're signposts. We're signs. People aren't supposed to stop and worship us and have a picnic and camp around us. Imagine down, you're driving down the road, someone's camped out by the sign. What are you doing? Oh, we just love the sign. No, we love the God that this sign is pointing to. And so we are supposed to be signposts. The Beatitudes cause people to look at our lives and say, well, there's got to be someone or something that causes them to respond that way because I sure don't. And our lives should shine. Should be a path for others to look at and say, wow, the best is yet to come. You see, it should be his will and his way. And we surrender to that. And we shine as bright as the stars so that people find Jesus. God, help us today. Help us, God, to take that to heart. May we be the signposts. But God, in order to do that, we have to surrender ourselves and become strong in you. May when people look at our lives, they'll say, man, there's something different. They understand it's all about Jesus. And when they bump into us, the aroma of Jesus resonates from our lives and it points people to Jesus. Help us, God, to be signposts so that people can have a life-saving relationship with you. In Jesus' name, amen.